Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. And welcome back. We've been off air for a short while as we've been busy with other activities, but we are back in action now with a fresh batch of episodes ready for your ears. Join us as we go on another cinematic journey through films stimming with autistic resonance. We've got lots of exciting special guests lined up, and our hosts are more excited than ever to be chatting about autism and film. Please remember that we love to hear from you, so please do send us your thoughts about the films that we discuss, or send us your recommendations for films that we should take a look at. Email us on cinemaautism at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, Georgia and David are thrilled to be joined by a fellow northerner, the autistic filmmaker Sophie Broadgate. Sophie chats to us about her diagnostic journey, her approach to filmmaking, and her experiences working with autistic performers, before we all get overexcited about the film Tomboy. Many thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I am joined once again by the wonderful Georgia Bradburn. Hiya, Georgia. How are you? Hello. I'm great, thanks. Good stuff. Thank you very much. We are recording this in early January of 2023, so it's kind of Happy New Year all round to everybody. But we're also very excited today to be joined by a special guest, Um which is brilliant. We always love to have special guests on the podcast. Um, we have the wonderful Sophie Broadgate with us. Um, Sophie is a writer, director and filmmaker who is based in Cumbria and Manchester. So this, we've just noted amongst ourselves, this is like a proper northern podcast episode because we're all kind of <laughs> from, the, from the north, which is great. Um, and yeah, Sophie has joined us because Sophie is an autistic filmmaker. Um, so Sophie, I'm just going to pass over to you, to you if you want to just uh, say a quick hello, say who you are and what you do and and um, yeah, what, what you're all about, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm Sophie Broadgate. I'm a filmmaker, like you said, um, based in Cumbria, um, recently relocated to Cumbria. And my work spans across narrative, documentary, artist moving image um and I guess that I sort of approach film in an artist way sort of um deciding what genre and platform that I'm going to use depending on the idea that suits it so I'm quite a flexible filmmaker I guess but um I guess behind my work there's a unified voice and and sort of similar themes that come through I think throughout yeah absolutely and we've been um we've been taking a look at some pieces of your work um uh, before this podcast so you you sent a couple of videos in particular to us that we've been having a look at which we'll talk about in a moment and you've also suggested for us a feature film that we're going to talk about in the kind of second half of our conversation uh we're going to talk about tomboy which is really really exciting um but we'll stick first of all with the with your own work and the work that you've been doing over the past few years um so uh, I will just say for the benefit of the listeners that you've got a, a website which has got quite a few of your films on it that people can go and watch. Um, 
So I might be pronouncing this wrong, but Pikaia Films, is that how you say it? I'm not even sure how you pronounce it because I've only yeah. ever written it down, but I'm saying Pakaya. Pakaya. Um, Pakaya Films. It's like an ancient sea creature. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, great. I thought it might have been named after Pikachu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can see a link there. But yeah, it's some kind of like strange eel. Okay. <laughs> we love a good strange eel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're big fans of strange eels. <laughs> okay, so Pikaya Films then. So that is uh, P-I-K-A-I-A Films, <clears throat> uh, which I'm sure if you Google, you'll find the link but also we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes as well so there's a bunch of your films on there which is really cool um and we can you know everyone can go up on there and watch them but the two in particular that we've looked at are um the short films we created invisible systems and structures and in motion um both of those are sort of it's a really nice pairing because they're both kind of addressing very similar um uh, themes and ideas and also obviously they're very connected to autism and neurodiversity and the kind of processes of people figuring out and embodying I guess their identities and their neurodiversities so I guess we'll start by um just asking you you know like how how did those films come about um what was it like to to shoot them and 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 put them together um, and yeah, anything else really that you'd like to say about the, the making of those films? Yeah. Um, so the first one was, um, yeah, we've created these invisible systems and structures. That one came first. Um, and I started thinking about that idea when I realized that I'm autistic. Um, so I only got diagnosed with autism last year. So it's a relatively new diagnosis. Um, and I'm 32, so it's a late diagnosis as well. Um, and I guess previous to that, I was just spending a lot of time trying to figure out what was going on with me. And then as soon as I sort of looked into autism more, um, there's a longer story of how I actually like came to it, which I can tell later. But um, yeah, I just wanted to explore it through film because I think that that's how I process things and how I sort of understand what's going on is by making some work about it. Um, so I was kind of self-diagnosing at the time. And I saw um, a call out for neurodivergent artists. So I emailed them and just said, I'm self-diagnosing at the moment. Is that okay if I apply? And they were like, yeah, of course, of course, apply. So um, yeah, I, I pitched this idea to them that I wanted to talk to as many different autistic women, non-binary people and trans people as I could. Um, and I guess it was just a process of both making a piece of work that was for the autistic community, but it was also for me to delve into it and have all of these conversations that I wanted to have. So um, the majority of it was made in lockdown. So a lot of the interviews were on Zoom um, and the film itself is short, but I think I had maybe like 10 hours of interviews um, in total to kind of <laughs> squish into something. Um, and I feel like there's probably material in there that I can go back to and and revisit. But for now, I've kind of like put it away um but it was amazing to have all of these really intimate conversations with people um and for them to yeah I guess trust me with with their thoughts and their own experiences um and I just started noticing all of these patterns throughout and I think that from making that film it kind of confirmed to me that well I'm definitely autistic <laughs> if I didn't have any you know if I didn't think it before it kind of confirmed it and then after that film 
time I decided to go for an official diagnosis because I was like, I've got all of the evidence. I've done my research because we love a bit of research, don't we? Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I felt like I understood myself a lot better from those conversations and I felt less alone in, in kind of this journey of figuring out what's going on. And then the second film in motion was made post me getting my official diagnosis and I wanted to make something that was a celebration and kind of showed where I was at that point in my sort of diagnosis journey. Um, because yeah, I think everyone has a really interesting journey afterwards and how you process that and how you feel about it. And I think, um, yeah, so again, it was another open call by Manchester Collective um, and they were just open to anyone pitching. Um, so I pitched this idea and I wanted to do something about stimming in particular because one of the things that sort of made me think that I wasn't autistic was that I thought that I wasn't stimming. Um, And what I realized was actually that I was sort of repressing stims and that I had very sort of like micro stims. Um, And then the more that I sort of looked into autism, the more I started to figure out what I actually wanted to do and what stims actually made me happy. Um, So I sort of reached out to a few people that were involved in the previous film plus some other people as well um, and sort of chatted to them about this idea. And um, yeah, three people were really generous um, in sort of being really vulnerable and showing, mm-hmm. um, yeah, showing their version of stimming. And yes, again, similar to the other film, just being able to spend time with people and have these conversations and yeah, be really vulnerable with each other was just, yeah, such an amazing experience. Yeah, that is really amazing. And, it, and it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, to think of them in those ways in that you've got these this pair of short films that are separated only, I guess, by a, a you know, a period of about a year or so, where one is about your in some senses is about your exploration of your own self uh, and your your own, you know, exploring your own thoughts about your autism and your neurodiversity and maybe not really understanding what it is or quite being able to pin it down. And in that film you don't see very many people, you hear them. There's a lot of not, there's not very much footage of the actual people that are speaking. You get a couple of glimpses here and there and then there's a person at the end. But you don't get, like, you don't see them. And then in suddenly in In Motion, which is post-diagnosis, it's very focused on the people mm-hmm. who are the subjects. So it's, it's interesting you go from this transition of, like, not having the figures in the film to ha- to very much having the figures in the film. It's almost, it's like, that. that's the... That's the process. That's the step that you've that you've taken in between those two things. Mm. Really interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I guess it's like an unmasking in a way, and mm. you know, really showing. Mm. Yeah, showing. Well, I guess the next stage is to show myself, um, and yeah. that's that's what I'm working on, which I'll talk about later. But um, yeah, there's definitely a process that's really clear. But for um, the first film, I really wanted to sort of similar to what we'll talk about with um, Siama's work is to really have some shots that were very observant and Mm. it's all about like rhythms. It's about sort of um, looking at the details of things. So that was the idea with the first one is to try and put the audience into a perspective and also to try and put them into a mood of being able to listen. Because I didn't, Mm. I think the pace of the film is... um, it's purposely quite slow in terms of how it cuts just so that people can really get into like a relaxed state. Um, and I kind of wanted it to feel almost like a bit of therapy really. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've had I've had similar thoughts um, when making <clears throat> sorry when making like my own experiments with films is the idea of um, film stimming in a way. So film the film itself using repetition, a pattern, rhythm as a way to sort of um, regulate itself as as I do as we do, um, and I think it's such an interesting approach to sit stimming on screen because there's there's a lot of conversation. Well, not you know, in in the mainstream, but um, within this sort of project, I think we've talked a lot about stimming on screen and and to what extent it can be shown authentically because it is such a instinctive um, thing. But I think, especially in in motion, seeing people stimming on screen, it felt it felt so natural. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, having stimming on screen more, showing more people stimming and and sort of extent to which it can be can be authentic and natural when it's it's done that way yeah it's it's definitely something I've been thinking about more and more and I think that um the reason why it was so natural in in motion is because it's not a piece of fiction um Mm. and I think um yeah it was it was literally like people that I'd already built relationships with the people that actually wanted to do it um were people that I'd spent time with before so there was already that that space for them to feel like I wasn't going to judge them. I also um, chose, you know, a smaller camera. Like it was very like low key in terms of how I made it, like no lights. Um, So I'd be interested to know like how you can sort of translate that onto sort of a cinema scale. Um, I know that there was, um, I can't remember it now, but I did see somebody, an actor stimming on a series recently. What was it called? Is it called Special? I think it's a Netflix show. I'll have to look it up. Um, But there was an autistic actor in this Netflix show and there was a moment where he stimmed um, during one of the the episodes and it felt natural to me, um, but not as natural as maybe if you just sort of filmed yourself on your phone or something like that. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing and it's something that I'm trying to look into a bit myself because I'd really like to make a feature film um, that's about autism. And so, yeah, the scale of that might mean that an autistic actor might feel like they can't um, act as naturally. Right. Because um, uh, Alex Widowson, who's also part of this project, he's he's currently making a document, an animated documentary about um, autistic, uh, autistic subjects. And um, we were having a conversation during one of the interviews about um, sort of what it, if it would be, you know, ethical, if it would be, um, if it would contribute positively for him to animate su- the subject stimming, or if, if 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 they weren't stimming in that moment, to animate them stimming anyway to convey that sense of uh, emotional regulation. It was a really interesting conversation because I really didn't, I didn't really come to any conclusion because I think on the one hand, you know, stimming is stimming isn't performative and it shouldn't be shown as that but at the same time it is important to show people stimming or you know stimming to the extent that a, a lot of autistic people specifically do because at the end of the day I think stimming extends beyond neurodivergence I think a lot of people stim I think just for autistic people it's it's more uh it's more integral to our our way of regulation um so yeah I think translating it to something that's less um attached to reality um it that brings a lot more problems but i think i think what you said about 
creating an environment that isn't as invasive, um, that is you know, documentary based, that is real, that's based on the connection between the filmmaker and, and the subject, I think is, um, I think is really cool. Um, mm. Yeah, just wanted to say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I know I'm going off on a tangent and discussing another film, but how I came to know about you guys was that I went to the screening of, was it Keep the Change? Yeah, yeah, Keep mm. the Change, yeah. I think listening to you talk a bit about how they sort of went about that sort of gave me ideas for how you could sort of create that environment for, yeah, autistic actors to feel comfortable. Um, because I've always wanted to make something, well, always, I mean, since I've been diagnosed, wanted to make something about it. Um, so seeing something on that scale and, and showing it in the cinema, I was like, oh, well, this is really interesting. And yeah, something that the film industry maybe needs to take into consideration a bit more. Mm. Well, it was yeah. It's interesting to hear you mention. You use the word, you know, that, that, that these people were um, that 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 are part of your the in motion film, you know, uh, uh, being quite vulnerable, I suppose, with what they what they're doing on on camera. I mean, did you? I'm interested in in the, your a bit more in your collaboration with these in the, with these individuals. Was it quite once you know once you've got the once you agreed on it and I sort of got the setup? Was it then quite um, easy and did it come natural or was there a little bit of did you have to sort of ease into the situation of it a little bit did it, were there multiple takes or was mm. it did it you know were they quite forthcoming I'm quite interested in like whether there was a kind of a difficulty at any point there or, or whether it just or alternatively maybe it was kind of like a, a sudden burst of energy of of like you know these people's stims were being taken seriously and therefore they could just do them and, and do them kind of joyfully I suppose yeah I think um I think each person required um something different in terms of getting yeah. them to feel comfortable um and I was also really ready to just you know if I turned up and they weren't in the right mood or they decided they wanted to pull out just to be like that's absolutely fine so I mm. kind of approached it in a very flexible way on my part but also made sure that everything was in place that they knew exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to be and um, yeah, do everything that I could to sort of reduce any anxiety around it. And also to keep a conversation throughout, you know, about consent and about, you know, how comfortable they're feeling, if they need a break. Um, I think just having that dialogue with anyone you work with is really important. Um, but yeah, each person in the film had a different process. So um, Marissa, for example, who um, was in the forest, mm. um, we spent quite a lot of time just in the forest before we did it, just to sort of like get used to the environment. She also brought her dog with her. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was it was a really nice experience as well for me just to, yeah, look around and, and sort of take that time to decide like how we're going to film it, how we both feel comfortable, what kind of movements. And um, yeah, and it, it was all a conversation around what do you feel comfortable with showing? Um, and I think, um, yeah, everyone seemed to be quite happy with... Um, with how it turned out. Um, I think that's, I made sure as well before it was screened that everyone watched it and everyone was mm. comfortable with yeah. how they were being represented as well. Uh, I wanted to ask about In Motion again, um, because it, it deals a lot with language and expression and it reminded mm. me a lot of In My Language. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that film. I, I can send it to you after. It's a, a film by an autistic uh, activist and writer called uh, Mel Baggs who um, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But um, mm. the film is, is a, 
is um, they were uh, non-verbal and they uh, communicated via a vocal synthesizer. And the film is basically them showing their language. There's two parts of the film. The first part is them um, stimming on camera. They uh, uh, create vocal stims. And then the second part of the film is the vocal synthesizer essentially translating the first part of the mm. film saying, um, this film is not in your native language, it's in my native language. Um, and not, it doesn't symbolize anything. There's no semiotics, coding, symbolism, as you would in sort of, you know, normative cinema. Um, there's a there's a part that I really love because um, I, I the connection between autism and water I've been really fascinated by, but there's a a sequence where they are, um, are sort of putting their finger under a tap repetitively and saying, the water doesn't symbolise anything. I am interacting with the water as the inter water interacts with me. That is the, the crux of my language. It's about effective relationships and sort of pre-articulative language um, for which the tools for this language don't exist. So I wanted to just ask, is, is that something that sort of like went into that that project, that idea of of finding a way to articulate a language that doesn't really exist um, in semiotics and in, in verbiage, but in sort of um, that sort of pre-articulative state. I wanted to know your thoughts on that. I know yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful. Um, sorry. No, no, it was really it was really interesting actually. And as you started talking about the film, I was like, actually, I have seen it. <laughs> I've seen mm. it um, because I did before I realised that I'm autistic. I was um, on a creative project and I got trained on how to work with autistic people and they showed that film and I was like, and I was watching it and I was like, I think I might be autistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I really loved that, that um, yeah, the bit under the tap. I think that's, that's an image that really stuck with me for sure. Um, yeah, in terms of like a language, yeah, I think I'm really interested in sort of what bodily movements are trying to tell us. Um, and I think like, it's really interesting. I love watching dancers, um, especially when people are doing sort of free dance and authentic movement and things like that. I, th I think that's a really interesting way of um, expressing yourself. And yeah, I'm really interested in what are the stories that people are trying to tell, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. Um, so I, I definitely, there was a lot of that within emotion is when I was editing it and watching it back, I, I found myself sort of trying to translate and trying to understand, um, you know, whether it was a story or whether it was just like, what feedback is this giving the person? Like what, yeah, what are they getting from it? And I think that's what's interesting about stimming, like you said, is it's such an individual thing um, that I feel like I could have made a much longer piece because there's just so much that isn't represented in that film um, just because of the length mm. and the scale of the project. But um, yeah, I was really interested in how you sort of, yeah, represent a bit more um, mm. of the range, I guess. Well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the, 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 the sort of voiceover of In Motion is this very carefully constructed sort of quite, well, it's effectively a poem. It's a poem of the of talking about the the, the body language. Um, you know, the the opening line is "I'm not made for stillness," um, and you talk about your my body language is my mother tongue. So again, in contrast to the earlier film, um, 
into the uh, we've created visible systems and structures film where the dialogue is well dialogue the the voice over is is the natural people talking whereas in motion it's this very kind of precise and controlled poetic really uh, this, this poem that sort of runs through it um which again gives you this this the, the two films then you know contrast and compare quite nicely with each other in that sense because you because the first one is kind of freeform speech in a way and then the second one is very controlled speech but freeform movement so it's like there's the kind of balance there almost going on between movement and, and language um was I, i'm interested in in that in that writing was that was that yourself did you write those those that that kind of voiceover and also that's not performed by you is it? it's performed is that performed by a poet yeah um yeah i wrote I wrote all of the words myself um, mm. and I kind of wrote them in a very like fast sort of like it just came out kind of way. Um, mm. And then I did do like one edit of it just to kind of get some of the words to sound smoother. So maybe changed a few words here and there, but I think it was very sort of like instinctual how it happened. Um, and then um, it's Anne-Louise Kershaw who reads the voiceover, who is also neurodivergent, which was really important to me that as many people as possible in the process were also neurodivergent and um yeah and she just has a really great quality to her voice and um she's also a musician so she has like a rhythm to how she goes about things so yeah it was a really nice collaboration yeah it's really good yeah i mean both of the films were were really wonderful to watch i mean i really like you know there's this focus on the on the first film the, the invisible systems instructions uh short which is a little bit longer than in motion and in that uh film you go from kind of um the people that you're interviewing are talking about themselves and their own identities but then they move sort of around about the halfway point move into talking more about their interests and their kind of the things that excite them or 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 fascinate them um it's quite a smooth transition actually going from the talking about themselves and their own identity and their relationships into then their their "Quote unquote special interests or their kind of uh, passions, um, including things like listening to thunderstorms, um, water, as we've already mentioned, the looking and looking at the flow of water, and also of animals. And there's a lot of there's a big presence of animals as well in the in the in the film. Mm. You focus on dogs, cats, newts. Is it a newt in the in the there water? There is a newt. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which which was really interesting. I mean, was that a conscious decision on your part, or was that kind of due to the nature of the fact that it, you know you had to film this during lockdown, so you had to just sort of find the imagery that you needed to find, or I don't know what was the what was the connection there between I guess the 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 interests and the passions and the, and the the visuals that we see on the on the screen. Yeah, I suppose I should explain um, that there was different layers of collaboration available on this project, so. Um, people could either choose if they wanted to have a voice interview with me, which a lot of people did choose. Um, or if you wanted to have some kind of conversation over email or there was like an artistic response. So some people sent me like drawings or mm. um, an interpretation of some of the questions. Um, and so some all of those visual ideas, all of the email conversations and the Zoom conversations were all done first. Mm. And then I then took those responses and then made the visuals based on that so all of the visuals are very purposefully reflecting or contrasting what people are saying um and i guess 
it's nice that you say that it flows actually because I was worried that because there was just so much um within the interviews and so many ideas that I just worried that it might be a bit sort of chaotic um but I think that the the journey of the images sort of helps to sort of transition yeah. things um but yeah there's a real mixture of stuff there and I think that um definitely the collaboration and the ideas of other people are in there, but there's also very much a lot of my own interests in there as well, um, which I sort of found in common with the people that I was talking to. So yeah, I absolutely love landscape, really close detailed shots of nature. Um, so that was just like, I think that was my favorite mm. bit actually, is just being alone outside with my camera mm. and really focusing on stuff and just mm. seeing what I could capture. Like, um, and I think it's it's a really different way to how I've worked previously. I mean, I think I started my career working quite like that, like really flexible and sort of taking a camera out and seeing what I could find based upon an idea. And I think the more I went into narrative work, which has been a good body of my work, um, the more sort of controlled I became about things. Mm. So I think it was really nice to have in both of these films just a level of sort of yeah, that documentary artist film sort of way of working where you go out and you go, I've got a really clear idea of what I want to say, but how I'm going to say it is kind of up for grabs and it, it kind of changes Absolutely. as you move through it. Yeah, I have that struggle as well. <laughs> it's like you have a a, a specific idea of, of what you want to express, but film is so based on like these these forms and all these these codes and things that need to systems that need to be put together and there's a, a framework that's set out by what is conventional and it's about sort of reinventing that to fit what we're trying to say which is mm. very different to a lot of um i don't know conventional things i mean in a way because like that i mean you talk a lot about that in the films especially to do with gender um because there's the i mean the the first film there was a a lot, I mean, it's in the title, we've created these invisible systems and structures about not really wanting to, or not being able to fit into what the the hegemony of what is being given to us. Um, and I wanted to ask um, so why you decided to interview women, non-binary and trans people and the significance of that in the film. Yeah, I think um, that was right at the beginning of when I, why I wanted to make the film. And um, I think it's just because I didn't realize that I was autistic because of the narratives that I were, I was being given about autism. Um, and as I started to sort of, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you why I, I figured out that I was autistic because it kind of fits in. So mm. um, I used to work um, and do sort of workshops and facilitate like creative projects. And I was given a project that was to work with young women uh, with autism. And so I spent these sort of like one-to-one -one time with, um, with various ages of, yeah, young women and girls, and we would make animations together. And having all of that time with all of these girls, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's me at age 15, age 16, 17. Um, because I think some of the first meetings I was like, I don't, I don't think these people have autism because it doesn't, you know, it, it just presents in such a different way and mm -hmm. totally opened my eyes to um, the fact that the narratives that I thought, you know, 
oh, this is what I thought autism was, was incorrect. And I just mm. had this like feeling throughout my body that was like, oh my God, oh my God. So I um, <laughs> I uh, spoke to one of my colleagues um, that I was working with at the time. And I was like, we were in the kitchen making some tea. And I was like, ah, I think I might be autistic, you know? And she was like, of course you are. <laughs> she was like, why, why do you think that you're working on that project? And I was like, uh, cause I'm really empathetic. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, and yeah. And I just suddenly had this moment where I just like flashed back to my whole life and I was like, oh my God. Um, so I think sort of the experience of me missing my own autism when maybe it was clear to other people, um, was I felt because of the masculine narratives that were out there. So it was really important for me to create a space for myself and the people that were involved to really reframe the narrative, I guess, and sort of provide, I think it was about providing information that I didn't have because I just mm. really wanted other people to be able to see this film and maybe either see autism in themselves or see autism in their family members and friends and, um, yeah, just wanted to share <laughs> share the, the learning that I had when I had this this moment of being like, oh my God, yeah, I, I kind of understand what's going on now. Hmm. That's really interesting because I, I've fairly recently been part of this, that kind of a conversation where I've been on the other side, where someone has come to me <clears throat> and said, oh, I think I might be autistic. And I've gone, yeah, you absolutely definitely <laughs> are autistic. And they had the similar reaction of like, what? And I, it's, it's sort of like, because I've been working, of course, like around autism for a few many years now. And I, one of the things I think about sometimes is like how, I mean, maybe this is too much of it. We, we can maybe can't have the time for this conversation now, but it's like, how do we go to this point where we are able to say to somebody, do you know what? I think you might be autistic. Maybe you should get a diagnosis. It would be great for you. It's probably a really good thing. Because that's still like a really tricky thing to be mm. able to, that tricky boundary to be able to cross, right? To sort of swing in and say, yeah, I've decided what you are and you clearly mm. don't know that yourself yet. So why don't you go and get that checked out, you know? And it's like, but on the one hand, I kind of want this person that I'm thinking about that I had the conversation with. I, I, afterwards, I was thinking, you know, maybe I should have told this person a couple of years ago when I realized mm. that they were autistic and they hadn't. Um, but how would they have reacted to that at that moment? I don't know. So it's really interesting, but it feels like we are moving, maybe edging more towards being able to have that sort of a conversation, uh, potentially. Um, mm. It's really, yeah, it's, it's interesting though, as a, to think of like, where does the presence of taboo still sit with within the autism diagnosis mm. or self-diagnosis or, where, or whatever it might be? It's really... yeah. It's, it yeah. is a fascinating topic, actually, and, yeah, something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and I just hope that maybe, because I guess, like, any disability, the more information that's out there, the better. Mm. And, and then, mm. you know, if you can have all of this information that is easily accessible to everyone, then it'll just be in the public knowledge and then mm. people yeah. might come to the realisation themselves because, yeah, I... Nobody mentioned to me that I was autistic before this moment when I sort of brought it up. But I do wonder that without the knowledge that I had about what autism meant, how I might react. Mm. Um, and I, I've had similar experiences where since being diagnosed, people have come to me and been like, oh, maybe I'm autistic. And I'm, I'm always quite like, you know, it's really hard to know. Um, 
but you know you can talk about it and and I can have yeah. a sense about it but at the end of the day it's really hard to sort of get someone to that point if they're not at that point themselves so I think um yeah I would just say I mean this is why your project is so great because I think that cinema is a really accessible format for people to engage yeah. with new ideas um so hopefully we just get tons of representation um and yeah and then people can see themselves and and reflect on that yes well i think that would uh give us a nice uh segue <clears throat> into moving into our um the feature film that you've that you've suggested for us uh to to look at so this film is uh tomboy which was get my notes up now on this which was released in 2011 uh directed by Celine Sciamma and it it was her second film i believe second film um and yes so a, a really brilliant choice i think and a really interesting film and certainly one that um that fits really well with the with the films that we've been discussing on this podcast um and uh so yeah thank you for bringing that along to us and suggesting that to us i think i would just like ask you sophie if you want to just sort of give us a quick summary of the film and also um uh let us know why particularly you've picked this film out for us to mm. discuss so tomboy is it follows the journey of law or michael um as they later sort of choose to identify um, when they move to a new place in Paris um, and they get a chance to reinvent themselves and explore sides of their personality and gender that feel like they needed to be explored. I guess that's probably a, a simple way of putting it without going yeah. into too much detail. Why did you pick this film out in particular? What is it about the tomboy that, that really resonates with you, with you from particularly from an autistic point of view, do you think? Mm. Mm, I think that it's both the narrative but it's also Siama's filmmaking. Um, and I'm really interested in, yeah, digging into both of those things. So I think, um, first of all, this film just um, personally meant a lot to me. I think I saw it um, the year it came out and I'd never seen a film before that had sort of represented my childhood experience um, with gender and sort of exploring what it means to be um a, a woman or a man or, you know, what, what do those words even mean? Um, and so, yeah, seeing this film and I showed it to my family as well. And my mum was like, oh my God, it's you. And <laughs> so it's, it's always held a really, um, yeah, fond place in my heart. And I always come back to it for inspiration, mm. um, both sort of narratively and visually. Um, so away from the narrative, I think the visuals are really interesting in terms of autism because, of the sort of the gestures that mm -hmm. are focused on. There's lots of shots of um, hands moving, legs, or even just um, in the opening sequence, there's, you know, light passing through trees. And it's yeah. a really simple mm. visual, but it's it's definitely, for me, a visual stim. Mm. Um, and I think what I really like about Siama's work is um, how you can get a lot of the narrative without the words. And mm. that there are just, these amazing moments of silence or calm or really letting a shot play out so that you can see the micro expressions of the characters. And I think that um, it's really important to have these. I really love how Siama has these really close up, very intimate shots. And I think that's really important for, um, for Law, uh, Mikael, um, because 
their facial expressions are so small and you can tell mm. that there's so much going on internally that you kind of need to be in that space with them and really, really up close. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so many layers um, mm. to the film that sort of brought me to see it in an autistic perspective. Mm. Um, and I know that that's, that's not necessarily the, the um, intention of Siama, but I, yeah, I can't help but see autism throughout it just because it mirrors my experience so much mm. um, and I think what's really interesting about the film and when you hear Siama talk about it um, is that she said I'm going to read this out so I don't get it wrong mm. but she said the film's built on several layers of meaning and shouldn't be pigeonholed and yeah this this sort of phrase that she said really resonated with me in terms of how I like to live and how I want to make work and I think mm. um reading that phrase it kind of gave me permission to look at it mm. from a different perspective i guess mm. absolutely i think what i love about Siama um is she she has this ability she just she uses the whole image and she uses the whole frame and nothing goes unnoticed even things like you know the hand outside of the car going past the trees a simple gestures touch she's a master of haptics as well, which for me is really important because I'm very interested personally in in touch in cinema and how we can feel touched by the act of touching on screen. I think um, obviously Portrait of a Lady on Fire is, is probably her most famous film now, but I think that film is also really visceral in terms of its haptics and its use of, of touch and how these sort of micro exchanges between people, even in childhood, um, can be so intense um, yeah. You know, what is just like a, a cursory or passing glance is something that can be so overwhelming or so full of joy or so full of anguish. And like you say, uh, there's there's barely any words to go with this. And that's why it's just so magical, because she's able to create so much and make you feel so personally involved in the film through just a complete uh, lack of words. And I do ident I identify with the film so much as well, because I, I had a similar thing as a kid. I was always I was always mistaken for a boy because I um I always used to have quite short hair and I I I also didn't really recognize that, that gender was a thing and I only really became hyper aware of gender when once it was kind of forced upon me at school when people were saying you know you're a girl you need to wear your hair like this and then mm -hmm. that's when I was like oh that's what I need to do but before I was told that my automatic instinct was to not even care about gender I like I really didn't care and it was only until those systems were were forced upon me like like the mother does with with um Laura and Mikhail that's when we we sort of are gaslit into thinking that these things are so um like integ like identity is based upon categorization um and I think you know it makes me think a lot about of the fact that there's this really there's this statistic that is a bit I don't know I think it's a bit stupid but there's a statistic saying uh, autistic people are more likely to identify as trans and it's used by, by you know, a lot of mm. trans-exclusionary um, communities to say um, that the trans transness is about influence and that autistic people are easily influenced. But a lot of us are saying, doesn't that just show that the fact that we as autistic people who are less, you know, susceptible to these sort of structures can see that these things aren't actually integral mm. to our society and they're not integral to our identities i remember seeing that and thinking you know no wonder <laughs> you know i you know i think 
what the film beautifully shows is is how in childhood when things like this just don't seem important because they're not important I think as a child um, you see things so much clearer you really see things for how important they are and it's only when you know an ad- adult or a carer or someone important in your life tells you that you're that you're wrong or that you're doing it wrong and that's the moment where it you know it is instilled in you and it's such a I don't know, the ending of the film always affects me really, um, really intensely. I always feel super sad because it reminds me of how many things we learn that are so, you know, unimportant. You know, and since since I've made that realisation, I've been more experimental with gender. But, um, yeah, I really, I really, um, you know, I agree with the idea of the, the... lack of dialogue giving it all to the image I think um Mm. it's just something I really appreciate about that kind of cinema because Mm. yeah you don't need words to say something like that yeah totally um I really like what you just said about sort of the expectations that other people put on us and I think there's a beautiful moment in this film where um Law Mikhail's mom um gives them a lanyard with um, the new house key on it and it's Mm. a pink lanyard. And then Mm. you see a scene later on where Mikael Law um, decides to take the keys off this lanyard and make their own lanyard with a neutral white colour. And I think that throughout this film, there's just so much colour giving us cues on, you know, how, how the characters are feeling and what is physically and emotionally being put onto them. Um, yeah, and I'm similar to you, like the ending of this film um, and the reactions of everyone else when when the story sort of starts crumbling. Mm, it's devastating. It's just devastating because, yeah, it really sort of... And I think that's why I love the film as well because it really helped me sort of reflect on the moments that I might have had in my childhood of people being like, oh, what are you doing? Like I used to get um, mistaken for a boy all the time as well because I did choose to cut my hair short um, because I thought I looked cool like that, so I just did right. that. <laughs> Um, and I was actually really like actively angry about gender categories and, mm. you know, going to a supermarket and having different clothes in different places. And and I used mm. to sort of, um, I've got a memory of, there was this magazine that was advertising toys. And on one side it said for boys and it had pictures of toys mm. and then for girls. And I crossed it out with a massive marker, like a black marker, and just wrote for everyone in capital letters. Um, so, yeah, I was always being mistaken for being a boy because, um, yeah, I presented when I was younger, you know, typically more masculine. And I remember being like going to the toilet and people being like, what are you doing in here? You're a boy. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just me. Like, just let me <laughs> let me be. Um, and I think that, yeah, sort of similar to what you were saying is that I had like a period of time in my primary school where everyone accepted me and I was totally free to to present and be exactly what I wanted without anyone questioning it. And then sort of at age 11, when teenage years come in, it was just this sort of like violent shift into people mm. being like, you're a girl, this is what's going to happen, this is what you need to do. And... um I have a really like vivid memory of deciding to grow my hair longer because I was just so afraid that I was going to get bullied um, because yeah. that was starting to happen. Like um, as I sort of 
got a little bit older, people started to become more confused by me. So they mm. obviously were like, what's going on? We need to, you know, pick on you. And, um, and I remember my mum sort of supporting that decision because equally, like she was worried about the fact that I might get bullied and I've always been a really sensitive person. So she knew that I couldn't mm. take the bullying. So I kind of like had a happy medium of having like a bit of a bob when I went um, and I was <laughs> yeah. like, this is good. Cause it's kind of in the middle. Um, but yeah, I still was really sad about letting go of my short hair. Um, mm. yeah. And I remember I was in the bath when we decided it. And I just remember like my mum leaving and me just sat in the bath thinking like my whole life is going to change now. And wow. I don't know how I feel about it. So I think this film is like, it just has so many beautiful moments like that, where you can just see people trying to put something onto Law or Mikhail and then them later sort of deciding, no, I'm not having this. And I think um, mm. I really love the the ending scene where, you know, you, you're not really sure where the film's going to end. And I think that's mm. a really nice thing because you're like, oh, I don't want it to end in a really negative way. And it kind of ends in this sort of like, we're not really sure way, which mm. I think's, yeah, sort of typical of Stiama's filmmaking. Mm. And I love that image of um, Mikhail Law taking off the yeah. the dress and mm. hanging it up and um, and walking away from it. And again, it's just mm. a nice symbol. Um, yeah, this film's just full of beautiful symbols. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen a lot of criticism about the film, explicitly saying, and it sort of goes against Siama saying, you know, don't pigeonhole the film. But a lot of people are, are seeing it specifically as an allegory for transness, specifically, mm. and saying that you know this ending where. Um, they at the end they say, "Oh, my name's Mikhail." So they um, go back to their male gender. Is sort of saying, you know, they went back to they decided they weren't going to be a, a um, sorry they went back to being law, um, and it's about you know abandoning transness in the early ages and it not coming back. But I mean, for for me, I don't think you know, I can see that where that reading comes from, but. Again, it's more of like this sort of like dialectic of identity that we have when we're yeah. younger and we go from these like really intense, you know, phases. So, you know, for example, when I was younger and I really, you know, I would always wear boys clothes and I had a boy's hair. And then maybe like a few months later, it was all about I wanted to be as hyper feminine as possible. I wanted to wear pink. I wanted long. I always visualized having long flowing hair. And then a few years later, it was back to you know, being a boy. So like you have these complete swings of identity when you're mm. trying to figure out where is it you fit in. And oftentimes we just find ourselves in the middle. For me, that's what this film is about. It's not about repressing. I mean, in a way it is like repressing that identity, but it's not um, explicitly um, a trans identity, even though it can be read as that. Um, and I think that's what Siama means by saying, you know, don't, you know, make this like an ultimate meaning. Because, you know, as children, we do play with gender. I think we all do. Mm. Um, I think that's quite a universal experience, regardless of whether you're neurodivergent or autistic. I just think it's this film makes it very clear that, you know, this is a stage that we have and it's it can be quite traumatic, but it can be very... Um, when we reflect upon it in ad adulthood, we realise, you know, as children, how clearly we do see things and what a beautiful time that is to experiment without having the sort of societal consequences of things being forced upon us, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you were sort of talking about like the clarity of youth, 
um, it just reminded me of um, how much I love the relationship between Mikhail Law and their sister. Mm. I love Jeanne. Um, yeah. And <laughs> what what's her name? Jeanne? Jeanne. Yeah. Jeanne, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought that that was such a beautiful thing to have um, yeah. in the film as part of it so that you're not getting constant judgments and, and everyone trying to change um, yeah, how they want to present. And I think really having that narrative throughout of like unconditional love and, and celebration mm. as well. Mm. Like I love that moment um, at the dinner table where <laughs> I think that Jeanne is invited to go and play with, with the group that Mikhail and Law, Law has uh, made friends with. And she says, oh, well, I made a new friend and my favorite is Mikhail. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so many amazing moments, like both verbally and non-verbally from Jeanne that says like, I accept you, I love you. And, yeah. it's, and it's over and over again. And I think that that's another element of the film that I really connected with because I had a similar thing with my younger sister is that she was the first person I came out to when I was young um, mm. as queer and yeah anything that I ever had to say I would tell her first because she was just she was younger so maybe it was like her being mm. younger that you know she didn't have these expectations on her but um yeah when I came out to her um she said oh yeah that's fine like everyone in my year is gay <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely um yeah so yeah, I I absolutely love that that relationship, and I think it's um it's really important that it's there. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I really love the the sister. She's wonderful. She's the kind of the the ally that everyone needs, really. And and she's um, what I really like, and and this kind of reflects upon other things that happen within the film as well. Is that she's not there's a there's there's perhaps a temptation when you're writing a film like this or creating a film like this that you would position a character like that as a as a as a potential problem as someone who's going mm -hmm. to like reveal to the parents like what this what law mikhail has been up to or what they've been doing and therefore is a kind of a point of tension and for a moment that that is the case because um jean the sister finds out that law has been passing as male um and you know, has to figure that out herself. But then, as you say, in that dinner scene, doesn't reveal it and doesn't actually create a moment of tension, but actually creates a moment of joy and of laughter that is shared with Law Mikhail and also with the audience. And the parents are a bit sort of baffled by it. But she's got that beautiful, that, that brilliant little kind of like giggle that children of that age have of that kind of real expressive giggle, which is really cute. Um I was really interested in, in in how the narrative is constructed by Shyama in this in here because what she does is she she picks up on these kind of uh, narrative points that I as a viewer thought thought were going in a certain direction and then didn't and and what actually the, the I think the smart thing about that is that she's not using these um, quite sensitive um, and quite um, uh, potentially quite tricky. Uh, issues or uh, ideas as plot points. So the the example that I, I have is the the, the clay penis. Okay, the play doh penis. Um, so Law Mikhail creates. Well, she, they're going to go swimming with the rest of the kids. They're all going out swimming in a lake somewhere, and they're conscious of um, of 
creating a kind of a bulge in their uh, in their swimming trunks. So first of all, they they cut up their swimming costume to make it in, to make them into trunks, and then make a, a penis out of play-doh, which incidentally is made in the company of uh, their sister, who is kind of playing with the play-doh at the same time as well. And then and then puts it into their trunks and then goes out swimming. And I when this was happening when the, the thing was being created and, and sort of positioned and she's looking in the looking in the mirror and checking that it looks right, I was like, oh, no, this is going to go wrong. This is going to go so badly wrong. This thing's going to fall out. It's going to get noticed. It's going to go to a weird position. It's going to move. It's going to shift. It, uh, uh, something's going to go tragically wrong here and the whole thing will collapse. But that's not what happens. None of that happens. It doesn't go wrong. And then later they sort of take it and they put it, keep it in a kind of little keepsake box which they keep in the shelf and it doesn't really come back into the to the film and what i really liked about that which is similar to the way in which the sister navigates the secret that they then start to have together is that there isn't this there's this sort of setup and then it it doesn't go to the to perhaps the dramatic expectation that you think it might do as a viewer and i think that's a really sensitive way of approaching this kind of subject matter. And it was one that as soon as I realized that this, that's what was happening, I sort of really appreciated that. Um, and it, the, the, the reveal, I suppose, of, of Laura Mikhail's secret to their, to, to their mother uh, or to their parents really uh, comes about through a slightly complicated process of, of Law getting into a, a fight with one of the other children. And then that child's mother coming round and, and, and then it, it all sort of collapses from that point on. But I really like, yeah, that, that, that Siami chose to not use these little dramatic moments to, to cause mm. further dramatic moments, but actually as these kinds of delicate observations of the sort mm. of process that these people go through, I thought it was really smart. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's what I love about Siama's filmmaking in general is just... Um, I think, and you, you probably will feel this as well, is that when you study film or you make film... You often watch stuff and you're like, I know exactly where this is going. Mm. So you, like you said, you go into this being like, oh, because I thought exactly the same thing. I thought it was going to fall out or something was going to happen to it in the water, yeah. this clay penis that they'd made. And uh, yeah, I was I was just presently, su pleasantly surprised throughout the whole film. And I think that that's the kind of films that I like to watch these days is films that, yeah, I'm surprised by. Mm. Um, and I think that all of Siama's work, I'm, I'm constantly surprised and constantly like just really immersed because you have to go along with the ride. And, you know, yeah. there's there's no moment when I'm watching her work that I'm like, oh, I'm bored. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm always super engaged and really in, in with the character. And I think, again, like coming back to those shots, like being really close with the characters and being part of that journey, I think. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And one of the other things I wanted to sort of mention as well, um, I mean, this is coming from a kind of like film studies perspective, I suppose, but I was, look, you know, sort of on the lookout for what we might call visual motifs. And I was really interested in why she's sort of using, um, she seems to make a lot of use of, of walls. Um, so Lore Mikhail is often filmed kind of flat against walls. Um so there's the walls of a of their house, but also there's a point where they're watching the the boys um, playing football, and they're kind of stood, and there's a wall behind them there. Um, and I was interested in this positioning, I suppose, of Laura Mikhail particularly against 
flat against walls. And I was kind of wondering, well, what, what's the, if there is a meaning to that, what is the kind of visual meaning to that? So it didn't feel like it was necessarily about, to me, it didn't feel like it was about blockades or divides or anything like that. It felt more like it was a, a sort of vision of stability of, 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 the fact that they they had the the wall behind walls behind them so often, it almost gave the impression for me that Law Mikhail had a kind of was quite quite stable in what they were doing. It was quite sort of was making these decisions as they went along about deception or, or about passing as 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 a different gender, but was never doing that in a way that tend to make them feel really anxious or make them seem really anxious. But actually, was just they seemed quite fixed in what they were doing and I wondered if that was kind of the the, the sort of the point of the wall motif I'm not sure mm. I wondered if anyone else noticed that or had any yeah. thoughts yeah I've definitely noticed it and I think I'd have to watch it again and just study the walls but I think from memory I feel like there is a journey with how the walls are used because right. I remember there's um there's a few shots that I remember where there is a wall but there is a divide mm. And there's a really good shot when, um, yeah, when the secret gets revealed um, and everyone, yeah, is sort of calling Mikhail Law. And that moment where they have to go and apologise to, um, yeah, the kid who had, they'd had a fight with and all of this and, and they were wearing the dress. There is a shot where Mikhail yeah. Law is here, there's mm -hmm. a divide and then the boy is there. Um, and I think that there's a journey between that. And I think that there are moments in the film where, like you say, Mikael Law seems really like solid in in their decisions and in their identity. And then there are these moments that things are put in the way. Mm. Um, like the scene where I think before they interact with the group of friends that they make, they watch them from afar mm. and they watch it through, you know, um, sort of like a fence, isn't it? Mm. So you can see that divide there. And I think that there's definitely a switch between the film. And it, it doesn't seem like a, like this film, it's not particularly like typically linear. So I think that the journey sort of switches back and forth in, in terms of what the walls and what the, the backgrounds are doing. Mm. Um, but I think it's a really interesting observation that you made about, yeah, the strength that's there. Because I think that that's, yeah, that's a really good point to pick up on because it would be really easy to make you know, a character like this into a victim yeah. or, you know, um, because they do get bullied and there is a lot of negativity that happens. But we keep coming back to this idea that this character really knows who they are um, at this point in their lives. And they might be having this moment of exploration, but they keep coming back to how they want to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, that's an interesting, yeah, visual cue to pick up on. Yeah, really interesting one. And I, I think uh, just to, I mean, we mentioned before we were talking about the ending, um, which, uh, I mean, <clears throat> we always say spoiler alert, but like we just assumed that people, if they're listening to this episode, will have watched the film or would be interested in watching the film. But there is, you know, we we, we work our way around to the ending and there's um, Law and Mikhail um, sort of reuniting with the girl that they've been sort of having a kind of relationship with, a kind of sort of girlfriend figure lisa um and uh you know that the, they've they've had a falling out because of the situation but then they come back and, and lisa says what's your name and, and and laura says i'm law and there's a there's a moment just before the end where law just smiles just a little bit 
And I think that that's, for me, what's really important about that ending point. Like, all the way through the film, we're watching Law's face, and it's kind of quite a... and often quite a kind of blank face. Like, the the actor Zoe Heran, I'm not sure if that's pronounced correctly, um, keeps keeps quite a neutral look in many ways. And and, the, and this kind of ending, it, it, it is... It mirrors the uh, the first bit, uh, early bit where um, where Law Mikhail first first meets Lisa, and Lisa says, and Lisa then mistakes Law for a boy at that point, calls calls her him, and and Law goes with it, and then at that point says that their name is Mikhail. But there's this kind of pause where you don't really get a reaction from Law Mikhail when when Lisa says he, and you just have the, just their face. They're just sort of looking, and you can sort of see that they're kind of just contemplating it, just thinking it through. And then there's, there's moments all the way through the film as well where Law and Mikhail just does that little delicate kind of smile, almost like a half smile that only comes up like half of their mouth, but it's so beautifully observed and so precise and so brilliant. I mean, the smile comes on their face during the dinner scene that we mentioned earlier when... Um, when the sister is is kind of joking around and they're smiling. And it's really lovely to see that. So I think that tracing Law's smiles throughout the that throughout the film is is kind of an important pathway or network, I guess, to 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 seeing where they are at that point in their own self, I suppose. And so when we get that moment at the end where they decide at that moment in time that they are law and they smile and they're happy with that in a sense, or it seems like it, then then that's kind of, that for me is a quite a satisfying ending. But it doesn't for me suggest that there are always going to be law from this point on, right? That doesn't suggest to me that they're going to, you know, a year from now they might be back to Mikhail again or something different, or they might just, you know, choose a different name or a different identity, or they might go non-binary, whatever it might be. There's not a suggestion, for me that ending doesn't suggest that that's their definitive identity because they're combining that name with that little smile and that warm moment that they share at that end yeah Mm, yeah I think um yeah I really love that moment as well because it it does suggest that things could get better for them um and it puts it puts everyone actually in the film in a better place than sort of like the turmoil that they were in but like you said that I think it's really lovely that there is a life after the film and I think that's why I keep on coming back to it because these characters stay in your head and you, you, you well, I always wonder like, oh, what's what happens after that? And, you know, there are so many possibilities. Um, and I think, again, like, yeah, I think all of Siama's films, there is a life after the film mm. and, you know, and it adds this authenticity to the characters that are in it because it's not like here's a story and here's the end and here's, you know, and it's it's very much like, very true to life that here's a moment in time um and here's how this person feels now yeah but but it all could change mm. i wonder if we, we should just talk briefly and we've we've been talking for a while now so we should come towards the end now but um i wonder if we should reflect a little bit on the mother character a bit more and 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 her position within this film i mean uh much like the uh, Siama's other film, Petit Maman, which I, I I watched for the first time last year and was completely blown away by. I thought it was one of the most wonderful films I'd ever seen. Um, <laughs> but there's this 
she's got this wonderful control over sort of like filming at a kind of child's level and so you often get like the the, the adults often sort of rise above this the shot and you can sort of only ever see their midriffs or if they're sitting down that's when you see their faces and so on so we're we're always at this kind of child's perspective all the way through and it's similar in Petima Man um but the mother is a very important figure in here obviously the mother becomes the point of tension uh when uh, the secret is revealed. The mother reacts very strongly to this, puts Law in a dress, you know, is trying to sort of force Law to be the girl that she thinks she is. But then, interestingly, at the very beginning, there's a um, there's a brief little moment where where Law and Mikhail makes their way into the mother's room and um, says, I think said something like, you know, the mother says, "Oh, do you, do you like your?" the way your room has been painted. So her Laura's room has been painted blue, a kind of traditional sort of boy colour. And there seems to be this kind of like, they seem to be quite happy and settled with with Laura's kind of tomboyish identity at that stage. Um, but then later when actually Laura is revealed to have been Mikhail for a while, then the mother completely switches and is is becomes kind of really angry about that situation. So I wondered, like, what were your reflections on the mother and and where do you sort of see her character going? I suppose after the end of the film, if anywhere. Mm, yeah, I think it's um it's a really interesting one to delve into. Um, I'm gonna have a moment to think about yeah. how to how to phrase it because I think my sort of my initial feeling about the mother is that I really felt mm. very upset about it. Um, I think that, you know, the scene where um, Mikhail Law is marched in a dress to go and, um, you know, apologize to the boy that she'd been fighting with. I just thought it was yeah. so humiliating. And I just felt like it was such a horrible thing to do. But at the same time, I understood, you know, because I, I understood the mother's journey, I guess, as well, because everyone in the film is going through their own journey of acceptance with themselves and also what's going on with Laura Mikhail. Um, so, yeah, I think my anger sort of <laughs> comes out as the first emotion, but I think that when you really delve into it, it's it's a really interesting thing, like you say, that the mother is comfortable to a certain level, mm. but then when that is pushed even further and, you know the categories of, you know, boy and girl become more blurred, that's when, you know, the tension comes in and the, the confusion of, you know, yeah, how how can, yeah, so what it's, it's I guess it's thinking about things yeah. on a spectrum, isn't it? It's like, <clears throat> you know, at the beginning, they're totally fine with, um, yeah, being a tomboy to quite an extreme level. Like it's, you know, there's, there's really no difference in the character themselves. Um, it's just how other people are perceiving them that yeah. is the difference. Um, so it, it's interesting that, you know, just that little tip towards like maybe them identifying mm. differently creates so much, so much drama. I think it comes back to what we were talking about, about these invisible systems and structures that, you know, and, and that's why I, um, yeah, really identify with this film is because to Mikhail Law, those categories mm. don't exist and they're flowing between them mm. um, and exploring them in, in a really like creative and natural way. And then there are these figures in their life that are trying to mm. be like, no, this is, this is right. This is wrong. What are you doing? And, and, and all of these questions, 
Um, and it comes back again to sort of what you were saying before, Georgia, about your experience of you not realising it and then people sort of coming in and being like, mm. here's the narrative. Yeah, it, it's, it's weird, like you say, because I, you know, to a certain extent, I understand where the mother, well, I don't, you know, agree with what the mother is doing, but I understand where it comes from because I suppose when you're um, an adult or especially a parent and you've you've had to learn so many things, especially of, of the mother's generation, of things having to be so uh, strictly codified and things like that, to, and then to bring your your child up as a certain gender and then that child saying, well, I don't want this anymore, and then that sort of... Um, reaction of being no that's not what you are I don't agree with it but I can understand where it comes from to a certain point um but then mm -hmm. again it does show that a lot of the things that we're, we're taught about identity comes from our parents and comes from um mm. uh, older figures in our lives and, and from people who've already been taught and it brings the question you know where do these come from if if we're taught you know on through this sort of um cycle of um you know parent to child you know do they still have any meaning and I think we're starting well we've been having this conversation for for years now but I think now it's starting to become more mainstream the conversation of why do we um, put these sort of labels and um, structures and categories on especially for autistic people as well because I think um, that period of of not really recognizing those structures kind of extends past childhood um, yeah, and and that creates the ten that creates the tension, and that's why autism is seen as as sort of like a a a, a disorder because it's mm. failure to to sort of fit into these structures when actually it's the ability to see through them in a way. And I don't want to like romanticize anything to do with autism in that sense because I think that's where we can start to go wrong. But I think you know talking about it from that perspective. Um, we can recognise that, you know, our parents' generation may have come from a different point of view. And I'm quite lucky because my parents have always been very quite respectful of whatever I've wanted to identify as. I'm very lucky. But, um, you know, there's a lot of kids out there who um, who are are not, in this case, like Laura McHale, and who are actually trans from childhood, um, which I think we should acknowledge as well. You know, not everyone has the experience of having that dialectic of identity. Some people are trans and mm. and that sort of denial of their true gender is is something that becomes sort of endemically traumatic. Um, but I think in, yet in the case of this film, um, the mother character does sort of signify that parental figure who is who determines your your idea of um, social structures for life, and whether it be for for good or bad. But yeah, again, like I say, I don't I don't think we're supposed to totally demonize the mother. Um, because mm. again the mother is pregnant as well she's about to have another child um another child who's about to go through the same through same experiences as law mikhail um and and sort of we see something like this possibly happening again and for jean as well who's sort of the the um the girly girl character who doesn't really see these um structures so um yeah that's i mean yeah like you say it's difficult to to come up with the, these thoughts on the mother because it's a horrible thing what happens but mm. you know you can't demonize her at the same time I think mm. yeah I think that's right I think um and and again that's that's what the writing in this film does so well is that 
every character is very much a whole yeah. person. You know, you see their sort of good bits and ugly bits. Um, and I think that that's what makes it such a compelling story is that, yeah, there were moments where I was so angry at the mum and equally mm. at the dad mm. as well, or, you know, just angry at the people that were bullying. But then you understand each person. And even like some of the friends that are in the group that um, Laura Mikkel, um sort of joins in with, um, yeah. you know, they were nasty at some points, but then you saw these like really beautiful, very tender moments as well. So you kind of see all of the sides of the characters, even the sort of minor characters in the story, they're all very well-rounded. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. It's a good point bringing in those other, the other kids as well, yeah, because we do spend quite a lot of time, and Siam is very good at doing this as well, is, is drawing out uh, kind of amazing performances from, from groups of quite young children, really, and, and being able to sort of, I don't know how she manages it, but to, to sort of, put those kids in a position where they're happy to be, you know, pretty, seemingly pretty naturally talking and chatting to each other and yeah, saying quite naughty things to each other in some respects in, 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 in some ways and, and teasing each other and playing truth and dare and like, you know, you, do you love this person? You want to kiss them and all this kind of stuff, all that kind of kind of childish playground things that, that happen when you're that age, but, it, but are also a, you know, in a human sense, they're an important part of the figuring out of how relationships work and how, you know, and the, what does take place in that gender divide and, and, and whether yeah. what can be, where, where the toxicities of that sort of start and, and maybe grow and, and where that possibly comes from. But never overplayed, she just puts the, the camera on these kids and lets them talk, you know. Um, and it's interesting to see how that develops. And, and always at the side, you just have Law, Mikhail, just watching and listening, and you're never quite sure about what she's, she, he, they are contemplating and thinking or making of this. Um, and as you, you know, maybe not particularly very much because when you're a child at that age, you're not. Yeah, categories aren't quite as fixed down. Everything is much more fluid and fantastical almost, and you can sort of play a little bit with these ideas and these thoughts. Yeah, mm. it's fascinating. Um, I feel like we could talk about this film for ages, but I did want to pick up on one thing, and I'll try not to go off on a massive tangent about it, but the observation um, that you just picked up on is a really interesting part of the film, is that, um, yeah, the observation and mimicking, I think that's mm. that's another sort of, like, thing that I connected to with so, autism is that course, I've got yeah. very vivid memories of watching groups and then, you know, sort of understanding how mm. this environment works and then engaging, you know, and not going straight in. Yeah. Um, mm. And there's so many moments like that where you see uh, Mikhail Law standing, watching, um, and then interacting. Mm. And I think it's really interesting as well that by being the observer, Mikhail Law is given the label of shy. Um, Lisa right. says, um, oh, you're shy. And Mikhail Law says, no, I'm not. And I think that that, mm. that line really sticks out or well, that dialogue really sticks out in my head because, yeah, I'm sure both of you have received that as well is that, you know, people try to put that shy label on you and you're like, actually, I'm not shy. I'm just like yep. mm. happy being quiet, you know? <laughs> that's actually, yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's the, you know, there's the scene where they're practicing spitting, isn't there? And, and, and like figuring out like, 
taking off their their tops so that they can join in with the football where half of the the boys playing there are, are, are not wearing any shirts and so on mm. um yeah yeah it is really yeah, that's a really good point it is interesting how that that that, that dynamic of observing and um thinking things through is is worked out interesting yeah fascinating mm. all right well you have been chatting for ages about loads of things here um and i'm conscious that we don't want to run too far over time but what we will what i will just ask you sophie is um just returning back to your own work what's going on at the moment with you have you got anything coming uh coming up this year are you working on anything in particular at the moment We're really interested to hear what's 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 afoot for you over there to, for mm. 2023 <laughs> yeah um so i'm in very early stages of raising funding for two new projects um one that's a narrative film and another that's a documentary um it's kind of documentary artist film sort of similar um to the films that we discussed previously of mine um and it's i, I think i'll talk more about the documentary because it's on the same sort of path um because mm -hmm. it is it's still about autism and i think that um that's how i do a lot of my work is that you know there's a subject and i guess it's like a special interest in a way you know you go into it and you think that you might have answered some of the questions, but then more questions come up. So um, the next film that I'm making is going to be delving even deeper in and um, sort of revealing myself a bit more. Um, I think that the previous two films, um, particularly in motion, I'm channeling a lot of my own experiences through actors and through mm. the words that I'm using and the visuals that I'm using. Um and there will be elements of that within this new film, but I think I'm uh, I'm going to step in front of the camera for the first time. Um, I mean, I've done bits of that on YouTube, but mm -hmm. um, not in sort of a, a mm -hmm. very sort of polished form. Mm -hmm. um, so that's in very, very early stages, and I've, I've just sent off a bunch of applications. So I've just, um, yeah, sent them off into the ether and hope that they come back. But I think um, either way, I'll be making something um, that yeah, continues to explore it. Cause I think that there's just, um, like you've sort of proved with your conference, just so much need yeah. mm -hmm. for these conversations and, and that there's an audience that wants this work to be made as yeah. well. Fantastic. So, well, we'll, we'll look forward to the, I guess the, 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 the completion of the trilogy of, of going, <laughs> you know, from the, your, your, your diagnostic journey, I guess, through to, to the yourself appearing trilogy. on the screen. <laughs> The diagnostic <laughs> trilogy, yeah. Wow, fantastic. Um, well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Sophie, for coming along and for taking part yeah. in our in in our podcast. We always love to have um, people on here talking about their own processes. I think it's really valuable to our listeners. You know, I, I feel like we've got a lot of listeners who are interested in both film and autism, um, or both. Um, and it's wonderful that we are able to have people like yourself on talking about the processes of actually doing it. Um, and mm. uh, hopefully that will inspire some of our listeners maybe to pick up a camera themselves and start filming, which would be amazing. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much, Sophie. And, oh, and thank best, you so much. Yeah, and best of luck with everything that you're doing over, mm. the, over the coming months and years. Um, Thanks, Georgia, again, for being here and for contributing and for um, for your wonderful insights. So we'll finish things off there. Um, thanks uh, to the listeners for listening and hopefully you can join us again next time we are back. Um, and thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. 
Brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary, University of London and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening. Thank you.